the Askell Leadership Podcast. Our second podcast features Neil Boston. Full disclosure, I'm proud to call Neil a long-time friend. We've had many chats over the years and I've learned a great deal about leadership from him during that time. He's always worked in the private sector and has had a stellar career during which he has worked at board level for over 20 years and I've always wanted to record him talking about his approach and his experiences. Finally, I've had the chance to do that and here's the podcast. Just to start this by saying welcome to Neil Boston. Neil, absolutely delighted that you can join us uh, today for um, the Trust Askell podcast. Wondered if you'd mind just starting by telling us a little bit about yourself and also a little bit about your industry and how you got on, uh, into it. Certainly. So um, I'm, I'm nearing nearing the end of my career, actually, mid-50s now. Um, would love to be able to retire at 60 odd, although recent events might have put that back a couple of years. I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky that I've had a very a varied career. Um, I, I was one of those people that went to university and did a sportsman's degree with absolutely no idea or aspirations about where my career path was heading. Ended up applying for many jobs and, and found myself in the fashion industry down in London, age 21, which then took me down a route of, of business really and and although i i work in a specific industry now really that's that's more coincidence than anything else i'm i would consider myself and present myself as a businessman uh, and i've operated at board level for the last 25 years uh, both in ceo roles and senior commercial roles um and I've, I've worked in three or four different sectors right now i work in the uniform industry uniform and workwear industry which is where I've probably spent most of my career, but yeah, I've, 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 I've I have a fabulous career behind me. F- fabulous in terms of enjoyment, in terms fabulous of- in terms of varied. I, I've I've worked, I've worked for uh, British companies. I've worked for a French company. I've worked for a German company. I've worked for seven years in Sweden. I've worked for two US companies. Uh, I've travelled the world. Um, in normal times, I'm on a plane pretty much every week. Uh, last seven months, uh, I've not been on a plane, um, which has been unusual for me, and and in one one in one way quite nice, and in another way quite frustrating. Um, but yeah, no, I'm lucky because I've had a varied career. I've seen the world. I've met so many varied people from so many walks of life. Um, so I have no complaints about where my career path has taken me. Great, and obviously you've got a. Um an insight into education because you're married to a teacher. Well, well I have two insights, I suppose. I, I am married to a teacher. Um, I'm, I'm 30 years married this year to a primary school teacher um, who, bless her soul, has, has taught reception for her entire career. So she's she's much more patient human being than I am. But I was also a, a, I was a governor, fairly large state school for four years up until a couple of years ago when I resigned because it was conflicting too much with uh, with with work so so I've seen it from the uh, I've seen the education sector from the governor's chair as well and you mentioned you you're currently working in uniform and clothing um, you know from talking to your wife uh, that you know the, the school sector has understandably been struggling a little um, and uh, has been working hard to cope. How, how are things within your sector under C19? 
different, of course, but then I think every sector is different, whether that's good, different or bad, different. Uh, it just so happens that the the company that I work for now in a, in a senior commercial role is a global business, um, but we specialise in supplying uniform to hospitality. So our, our entire business is based around hotels, restaurants, casinos, cruise ships, etc. anybody that serves food. And obviously one of the sectors that suffered quite severely um, worldwide is the hospitality sector. So it's been testing times. We're a business and, and in business, as in anything, you, you deal with whatever comes your way and good businesses deal well with it. And I think we've, we're probably dealing as well as we can. Um, sadly, we've had to, to cut jobs. Um, we've made over 100 people redundant and that's the less nice side of, of what we have to do. But that's part of the job at the same time. Can we just move into I mean, one, one of the things that um, uh, that we discussed and I, the reason that one of the reasons that I asked you to come uh, onto this podcast is that you've had experience uh, of working as a CEO or managing director, both in one company with one site, if you like, and then also um, you've had experience of working in companies that have got multiple sites and in your case across multiple countries as well. So what do you think the difference is when you're leading those two things? Yeah, that's correct. I've, I've, um, I've had the privilege of being a, a managing director of a, a UK-based business, uh, and I've had the privilege of working at a CEO level in a, a Swedish company that operated across six countries, um, employing 350 people. I think before you talk about the differences, I'd, also, I'd probably focus on the similarities because as a, as a manager or a leader, there are certain traits that I think are critical for managing and leading full stop, whether that's single site or multi-site. And I think it's also to differentiate, it's important to differentiate between leadership and management as well, because there are some great managers and there are some great leaders, um, but some aren't necessarily good at both. It's critical in any business that you, you, are, you are certainly a good leader. Um, as a priority I think you can be a good a good leader and an okay manager but not an okay an okay leader and a good manager because leadership to me is always the, the most important but I think one of the one of the things that for me that is so important in any business is is communication um, I've worked in businesses where senior executives think that the right thing to do is communicate to the next tier down and they don't lower themselves to go below that. Um, I think in any business, it's important that you communicate at all levels down to shop floor level. Uh, and I think one of the most important things with multiple site businesses is that communication has to be even more honed because it's very easy to lose sight of the more remote sites. And especially if some of those sites are small relative to the size of the total quantum. When I worked, uh, as an MD of the, of the Swedish company, we were a 70 million euro turnover business. And the smallest of the six, six subsidiaries was a Polish subsidiary that had turnover of about 2 million. Uh, it would have been easy to lose sight of that. So communication is probably the key. Um, you've got to stay visible. And that communication is a combination of well, in, in the modern day of, of Zoom and Teams, back then it was video conferencing and and uh, and telephone, because um, I'm going back sort of 10 or 12 years. But 
but also to be there present on the ground as well. And, and, and one of the things that I found interesting, actually, when I took that role on, is when I first flew into each of the subsidiaries and I'd, I'd arranged it with the general manager of the site, they had, they'd, they'd set an agenda for the day where we would sit in an office and we as management would talk and then we as management would go out for lunch together. And as soon as I got there, I changed the agenda because actually what I wanted to do in all of those sites was get on the shop floor and talk to the people and not have lunch in a nice white tablecloth restaurant with management, but actually sit in the canteen with, with the people on the ground. And I think it's important for two reasons. I think it's important that you're visible and that people have the opportunity to, to communicate with you. And I also think it's important because with remote sites, if you only ever talk to the managers of those remote sites, you don't know what's going on there. You know what they want you to know. So the way that you ever, the, the way you find out what's really going on in any business, so whether it's single site or multi-site, is you don't just talk to the next level down, you communicate all the way to the shop floor. And that's when you really find out what's going on in a business. So, uh, I mean, hopefully I've answered your question. I think I think there's a, an awful lot of similarities between single site and multi-site, but the most important factor in multi-site is to make sure that you've, you're visible and that you're communicative. Um, and also that the cultures are aligned as well, because again, with multiple sites, you can you can have different cultures within each silo of a site. So so there's an there's an importance to get those sites operating together and working together and communicating together as well. And am, am I right in saying, Neil, <clears throat> that in one of one of your jobs, you spent some time actually on the shop floor making the product as well? I've done well. You're, you're correct, yes, but I've done that in more than one. In fact, the last, the, the the role previous to the one I'm in now, I had the absolute privilege of of working for a 220 year old British manufacturing company, which was one of the good old Stoke on Trent potteries, um, who happened to be a big global tabletop supplier to the hospitality industry around the world. Um, very traditional tugging the forelock to management kind of business, where management wore suits and had their own parking spaces. You know me fairly well, so suits don't appear in my wardrobe. So I broke the trend coming in in, in jeans and, and parking with the staff and not in my parking space, um, because it's not what I do. But um, but yes, absolutely. And, 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 and there was a reason I did that. I, I did, I worked on the shop floor. I worked on the factory floor one day a month, every month for my first year. And there was two reasons I did that. Number one, because as far as I was concerned, it was the easiest way to learn the business. So when I was talking to customers, I could talk to them firsthand about how the product's made rather than just rhetoric of, of being told how the product's made. But actually, the, 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 the real reason I did it was because I wanted to talk to people on the shop floor and I wanted them to open up to me. So by doing that and and having my breaks and my lunch in the in the canteen with the guys and and comparing tattoos and doing all of that kind of stuff you, you sort of break the barriers down a bit and and you become they become more trusting of you and more open to you and it was quite interesting watching the dynamic of the relationship that I evolved with the people on the shop floor compared to the rest of the board and their relationship with the people on the shop floor um but, but yes I've, I do that in every job I'll I'll roll my sleeves up and go and do stock takes or work on the shop floor or whatever. It doesn't matter what my title is or what my salary pack is. I'm just one of the team and, and 
that's that's how I operate. We we can't see you. Well, I can, but um, the people listening to this work can't see you. Uh, they can't see the fact that at the moment you're dressed in a uh, a t-shirt, um, short sleeve t-shirt, and you said that you don't do suits. Why don't you do suits? That is a very traditional management and leadership outfit. Um, it's it's well, honest answer is because I don't think it enhances your performance in any way, shape, or form. So, the the, the real answer, Rob, is it's a pure comfort. I don't feel comfortable in a suit, but I do feel comfortable in jeans and a t-shirt. So. And I think you go back to that whole thing about leadership, management, trust, respect. Again, for people that can't see me, not only am I in a short sleeve T-shirt, but I am tattooed. And and you'll know because we have been out in our personal lives. Um, the odd bad word may slip out of my mouth occasionally. But but again, I think uh, I, I built up a, a, a career and I've been successful based on respect and trust. And I don't think that's based around what I wear or whether I have tattoos or not or whether I swear or not I think it's in in any leadership role in any management role people will react to you based on a number of factors one is how you treat them and if you treat them with respect number two is if they trust you and that respect word and respect is a great one you know I actually had I actually heard somebody say to somebody once you have to respect me because I'm your boss. And I don't think they actually understood what respect meant. You have to do what I say because I'm your boss. That's one thing, but respect is something you earn. It's not something that's ever granted to you because you have a title. And again, things like working on the shop floor, things like helping out with the stock take and doing your shift, things like not parking in directors' parking spaces, but parking where the troops were. In fact, my director's spot in my last company, I converted into an employee of the month spot by the front door. Um, But they're the little nuggets that get you the respect. And then the other challenge is, yeah, but if you start to break those boundaries, people don't know where the line's drawn. And and actually, I totally refute that because people absolutely know where the lines are drawn. I don't think I've ever had an incident in my career where somebody's misinterpreted my relaxed open style with the fact that they can maybe get away with things in fact there is another side that says you know there is there is a discipline side that means that people part of the learning in in certainly how I manage is people learn fairly quickly that there are you know we the, the relationship is quite simple as if you if you work hard and you do your job we have a great relationship but if you cross that line or you abuse your position or you you break the trust then we have a problem i don't think you need to wear a suit or park in the director's spot to gain respect uh, i think it's how you operate and act is how people decide whether they want to respect you or not so, so linked to that neil how do you know that people are being productive and and they're, they're working well enjoying the work that they do or, or not I suppose part of that is is pure and simple, brutal productivity numbers in terms of whether they're doing the job, um, whether they're enjoying the job. Again, when you when you break those boundaries down from we're the executives and we have the parking spaces and we wear the suits and, you know, you're the minions and you do what you do. When you break those barriers down and you become human being to human being 
that's when people are more open with you. So I think there's a huge benefit that people are more likely to engage with you and give you honest feedback if they feel there's, that they have their, the relationship that they can do that. There's a number of ways, I think, to, to understand if people are, uh, are happy in what they do. Just observing them is one thing, frankly. Uh, one of the other things I've put in place in, 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 in every business I'm working is communications meetings. It's very easy for communication to happen at management level and, and hope or expect that it filters down to, to the people on the floor. The Stoke-on-Trent manufacturing business that we referred to earlier employed 500 people. And one of the things I put in place when I went there was monthly communications meetings. So we had a we had a, a very large room that could accommodate about 160, 170 people. So once a month, we would do three 45-minute communications meetings so that everybody got to attend. We'd do a very quick PowerPoint slides that were more pictorial and gave them an insight into what was happening in the business, whether we were doing well or not doing well, and strategically what we were planning to do. And we celebrated certain achievements and we celebrated certain people. But there was also a forum at the end there for people to ask questions of executives because we were stood at the front, some in suits, me in my jeans and a T-shirt. And and first meeting we had nobody asked a question because it was new. Once we got into this, there were questions flying all over the place. People weren't afraid to ask questions. So, again, I think when you when you can break those barriers down, people start to open up and then you understand whether people are happy, whether people aren't happy. And if people are comfortable and happy, generally, they're going to be more productive anyway. OK, thanks. Uh, you've mentioned leadership and management as, as two sides of the same coin. Am I reading that correctly? Um, and, and so how, how do you see them as being different to each other? Um, I didn't say they were two sides of the same coin. Oh, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think they get confused, often get confused. Management is something we all have to do when we reach a certain level because we have teams of people, however large or small they are, and it's our responsibility to to make sure that they're organised and they have processes and that they do the job they're supposed to do. And that's management. You know, management is making sure that our teams are performing and and doing things in the correct way. And we put checks and measures and processes in place to make sure that happens. And we sit in our big chairs and we point and we direct and that's, that's management. But that isn't leadership. Leadership is showing people in what direction we're going and, and, and how we're going to do it and being the example that people look up to and follow. And I've, you know, I think some, I hear people talk about leadership when actually what they're really talking about is management. Um, And as I said before, I think it's quite easy to be a manager. It's not easy to be a leader. Leadership is one of those things that can be learnt, but it's generally, it's a bit like gravitas. You either have it or you don't, but you can, improve it but i think leadership to be successful certainly in a in a business world in the private sector business world i don't believe it's possible at at exec level and certainly at ceo level to succeed if you're a good manager if you're not a good leader as well but it is possible to be a great leader who's not necessarily a good manager because what you can do and actually i would if, if i reflect on my own career i would say i'm certainly a better leader than i am manager but what i'm very good at is surrounding myself with good people 
So where I'm weak, I bring good people in to fill the gaps. So I'm not the most structured person. I'm not the most organized person, but I'm a pretty good leader. So I surround myself with good managers is the way that I've been successful in my career. And presumably, from what you said earlier, those people that you're bringing in are not people that are automatic yes people either. Uh, oh, no, God, no. No, no, I would never. bring. In fact, if I inadvertently brought in a yes person, they probably wouldn't last very long because I don't need people to just agree with me. I need people to challenge. Um, now, having said that, I know a lot of CEOs who only employ yes people, um, but that's partly because they don't like to feel threatened by people who have freedom of thought and might actually be cleverer than they are, um, and because they're megalomaniacs and just want to be in charge. So, um, but, but, I, but I'm neither of those. I actually, I, I would, I would rather be surrounded by people who are far cleverer than I am. But I have a lot of self belief in my belief in my leadership. So I, I know, I, I know what I'm good at, and I know I'm a good leader. I know what I'm not good at, and I'm very good at surrounding myself with people that are good at the things I'm not. So yeah. <laughs> And the the different skills and attributes that you're uh, describing there, they happily cross over the different industries that you've worked in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, leadership is leadership, and I think, and and again, I'm I'm, I'm not an expert in education. Yes, I have a, a primary school teacher wife, and my mother was a secondary school teacher. And yes, I've served as a governor, but um, but that doesn't make me a certainly doesn't make me a, an expert in education but, but but i understand the dynamic and i understand how i understand the amazing job that heads do in, in an extraordinarily difficult environment but again it's about management and leadership and i don't think you could be a good head who's just a good manager and not a good leader or just a good leader and not a good manager so i think it's i think it's important to have both of those skill sets one of the things that you have alluded to as well is that um obviously as a leader you need to be able to change businesses and uh, to take them forward. Rescue is probably a strong word, but I know you have done some of that. But when you come to merging businesses, bringing businesses together, yeah, what's your approach to that? Okay, well, that, and you're right. I have, I have, um, I've been involved in acquisitions and, and mergers multiple times. In fact, in fact, I'm actually in the middle of one right now as we speak, um, and that is a different approach. And it's a different approach for a couple of reasons. I think you have to be extraordinarily empathetic when you're merging businesses when when you're merging two businesses together or more businesses together for all of the employees involved in in all of the businesses being merged you've got fear you've got uncertainty and you've probably got some resentment in there as well because they didn't ask for this they, they might have been quite happy in what they were doing and now they know their world is going to change but they're not sure how it's going to change so there's got to be a lot of empathy um, when you walk into that kind of situation, you've got to do a lot of listening. Uh, you've got to learn fairly quickly. You've got to engage a lot and you've got to be prepared to debate a lot with people and get as many stakeholders involved in strategizing with you. You've also got to understand that you're blending cultures together. If you, When you buy a business, when you acquire a business and you merge it in, you inevitably are going to have a culture clash. So you again, you've got to under, first of all, you've got to understand the cultures, and then you've got to work out how you're going to blend the cultures. And there's two ways you can do that. You can either go, we're the big fish, we bought you, so you're going to come in and you're just going to have to do it the way we do it and get used to it and you know live with it or or, or take your choices. That's not the way to do it. There's got to be a blending from both sides. I think the other thing is there's got to be a very clear timetable as well. 
I've, I've seen, you know, there's a gen, there's a general framework on how you integrate a business, and it's a it's a there's a six month template that allows you to do everything you need to do in six months. At the end of that six months, everything should be done and dusted and finished, so you can crack on and focus on the business. So that tainted that timetable needs to be quite transparent and in the public domain, so that people know what's going on. But it's really important to to engage and embrace people. So to get the people on board and sat around the table saying, what do you tell me what you think? How would you do this? So whatever plan and strategy you build, and you may know in your own mind where you're heading, but you need to get people along for the ride, you know, and, 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 and it's not the most complex management trick to get people around the table to reach a conclusion that you'd already reached before you sat around the table. But people need to feel that they've been involved in that process. And, and again, you just got to make sure there isn't a divide. I worked in a business before in, in the Netherlands where we acquired a business and we merged it. And, and a year in, we had a situation where people from the old company were sat in one half of the office and people from the, the original company were physically sat in another part of the office and they physically never merged. They physically didn't talk to each other. And that was 12 months after we, we bought the business. I have to say it wasn't a business that I'd integrated. I had to go in and fix that. Um, and we did that basically by doing lots of social stuff. We had we did lots of fun stuff, you know, sort of going out for nights out and paintballing and those kind of things just to try and break the barriers down. But but yes, it's a it, it's a challenge to merge companies. It isn't that difficult if the approach is correct. But the most important thing is to be empathetic to the people that are involved from both sides because they know there's inevitably going to be some job losses because if you have if you merge companies you have people doing the same functions you don't need two hr managers or two it managers or whatever it may be so there has to be a there has to be a a, a lot of empathy involved in that presumably that's empathy but mixed with some honesty about it as well um yeah and, that, and that's why i use the term transparency i think you have to be transparent that there's a timetable and transparent that there's a process that you're going through. And part of the reason for that timetable is because it's disruptive. In the period of time you're merging those businesses, productivity will drop. So it's actually important for the business and, and for the sake of individuals who, who have that fear of the unknown and they know something's coming, they just don't know if it's going to affect them. So it's in it's in the shareholders' interest, the employees' interest, everybody's interest, that you you do that process as quickly as possible. Six months is a sort of accepted business timetable, which is pretty fast, actually, for to do all the things you need to do. But if you protract it further, you just start to cause damage within the business. So in terms of that, that six months, and you said productivity drop, would you be expecting productivity to drop in both the company that has been bought and the company is doing the buying? Yeah, because I think that I think the uncertainty goes both ways. Again, you know, like I said, if you've got just as an example, if you've got two HR managers, the 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 incumbent from the from the acquirer isn't necessarily going to assume that they're the one that comes out the other side. Yes, they may think they've got the better chance, but it doesn't always work like that. Yeah, I think I, productivity. My experience says productivity drops on both sides. That's interesting, actually, because I, I wonder whether we really have acknowledged that enough in education, you know, with schools joining trusts and moving from uh, one trust to another trust, which is increasingly starting to happen, and even entire trusts being acquired by other trusts. You know, so all of, the, all of those models are 
are happening in education at the moment. I, I wonder whether we, uh, it's just an out loud thought really, are, are spending enough time thinking about the, the productivity, the children's education, in other words, and their outcomes compared to the, the structural changes, which is where we put most of our focus. Well, I think the, the, the reality is we're talking about human beings here. So, so human beings, teachers are human beings, people in business are human beings. And whatever distractions we have in our life, and we all have, we all run a, run a roller coaster in our own lives. And when, when negative things happen in our lives, it distracts us from our jobs. Generally, in a scenario where there's a group of people, one person being distracted because they've got a, a family crisis or whatever that might be, doesn't affect the business or doesn't affect the school because it's one person in isolation but when you throw that into every single person in that organization who all of a sudden have a level of disruption even if it's a small level i mean we may only be talking about a productivity dropping you know three four five percent but it's still a drop and and that drop has an effect on the children's education or or business productivity or whatever it may be so this all comes back to the empathy thing is is we have to understand we're dealing with human beings here and human beings you know we can sit there in our big executive chairs or big head teacher chairs and and we're looking down we know it's not going to affect us we're the ones making the decisions but actually you've got to be very empathetic that people are going through in some cases extreme pressure because if there is a genuine fear for somebody that they could be losing their job that's one of the most stressful things anybody goes through so, so there has to be empathy and there has to be understanding and, and engagement and transparency and all of those things. And, and like I said, it, it's, it's really important and fair that it happens as quickly as possible. Okay, thank you so much, Neil. Um, we, I, I, could, I could talk to you all day and indeed in the past have talked to you all day. Um, but uh, yeah. I was just wondering if we could finish up because obviously now is a particularly stressful time for leaders. Um, uh, but leadership is often stressful full stop um, because of all the things that you've um, highlighted so far. What what do you do to de-stress as a, as a leader? Well, you know some of the answers to that, Rob, <laughs> because some of them would involve alcohol. Um, no, uh, what do I do to de-stress? I'm, I, I'm a... <laughs> Luckily, I'm although I'm 55, I'm fairly fit, so so I'm a I'm a I'm a gym addict, which I think you also know. So. Um, I go to the gym pretty much seven days a week. I'm also an insomniac, which is why I'm a member of a 24-hour gym, uh, which I was in at about quarter past four this morning, actually, with lots of other insomniacs. So, yeah, no, I counter my stress by by exercise. So I go to the gym. I I, I walk and, and mountain climb a lot. I, I socialise a lot. I, I For my absolute sins, I do drink. And part of that is de-stressing. If I'm if I'm brutally honest, uh, I'm I'm privileged that we have a we have a little holiday place down in Cornwall, so that's a a bit of a retreat. In fact, I'm down there next week working because it's just nice to have the change of scenery. And I spend time with my family. It's all fairly cliched, I know, but but actually it's 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 important. I'm not going to mention football because it's not going very well at the moment. But um, so actually that's becoming more stressful rather than de-stressing. But yeah, I think the, the gym time to me, I, I do an hour in the gym every day and it's just nice to stick the headphones on and, and have some music and, and it's my own little one hour world. Unfortunately, the phone does go sometimes and I still answer it, although I always apologise for for my fast breathing when I take a phone call. Yeah, that's it really. One of the things that comes out of that is that you make time for things as well so that, oh, yeah. that work doesn't 
overtake absolutely everything i know you enjoy work very much as well and and probably don't see it as something separate to your life i think you you know yeah but I, but I, but i'm not a workaholic I, I don't claim i'm a workaholic i i think actually over over my career i've i've learned very well to put boundaries in place now having said that i i work internationally so yes i'm sat in front of the tv at 10 30 at night still answering emails that are firing in from the usa and when I wake up in the middle of the night at four o'clock in the morning, go to the gym, I'm answering emails that are coming in from the far east. But 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 I'm not a workaholic. So I'll I'll down tools at the weekend. It's very rare I work at the weekends because I know that I can't, you know, I'm I, again I go back to human beings. I'm a human being as well. And there's only so much I can do. And I think one of the things that that this current COVID world we live in has has actually brought home is is how much time I spend away from my family because I've just spent the last seven months with my family, which is very strange because I, when normally ships that pass in the night, but actually it's it's um, it, it's quite it's been quite nice to have, especially in lockdown when we all sat around the table and had dinner together every night because we never ever. I mean, my kids are, are twenty one and nineteen. We've never done that in their lifetimes, so it, it's been quite fulfilling from that point of view. Great. Okay. Thank you so much, Neil. Thanks for joining us um, for this uh, podcast. It's been really interesting. There have been lots of things that you said where I think we can see uh, lessons to be considered, thought about in the education system as well, and particularly in the schools and trust system. But we really do appreciate you giving us your time. Um, as you said, you're busy there for you to give us um, so much of your time and expertise today has been really helpful. So thank you so much for that. No, absolute pleasure. And, and, I, and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk to you as well. Great. Thanks. The Ask Leadership Podcast. 